scratch off the other ticket, the winning number this time is four, and I win $35,000. But I have this emotional reaction to this of, oh my God, I've just won the lottery. And not only have I won the lottery, I've won the lottery on a Wednesday immediately after doing all of this amazing magical work for myself that has taken me eight weeks. everyone and welcome to witch hassle i am of course your vigorous uh underslept and always mildly perturbed host cooper wilhelm i am very pleased that you are joining me today because i have my interview with andrew watt and we talk about a lot of fun things mostly we we focus on astrological cycles looking at the jupiter saturn conjunction the the most powerful and exciting of conjunctions, and what that means for us as we move into an air triplicity. And it's interesting because it was, it was an interview that I recorded with Andrew last winter when we were in the grips of this pandemic that now seems to be sort of abating a bit depending on where you are, but... I think the implications of what we talk about are so far-reaching that this could be useful information for you into the next 40 to 200 years. We also get into the astrological cycles that we find in the orbital, and also we also get into Andrew's right to win the lottery, which you just heard a little bit of. So it's a fun little time. Before we get to that, of course, we need to do the Plague Magic Minute. Well, we don't, but, you know, we're going to. I don't know when I'm going to stop. Maybe I never will. Maybe this... Pandemic will be a thing of the past, a distant memory, something that we don't bring up in polite conversation, and I will still be doing these Plague Magic Minutes. As always, these Plague Magic Minutes are bits of magic you can try to do in addition to following standard health guidelines, not instead of them. I mean, you can do what you want, but I, I would uh, propose that you do all the normal, standard, you know, empirically-based things, and then maybe try some of this stuff. And actually, speaking of which, I just found out today that if you live in New York City, and you go to one of the city vaccination sites, you can now do that without an appointment. And basically everybody 16 and older is eligible, which is a ton of people. And I guess the biggest vaccination site they're doing now is the Natural History Museum of Manhattan. And you get to do it uh, in the presence of the giant whale. And they've given the giant whale a band-aid and they put a big surgical mask on one of the dinosaur skulls, uh, just a magical thing. Uh, so that's really fun. So if you're in, you know, New York City, the greatest city in the world, go Mets, by all means, go get yourself vaccinated at one of those walk-in sites. And actually, speaking of New York news, a little bit of a personal thing, I just enrolled into a Masters of Social Work program at New York City's Hunter College Silverman School of Social Work, so I'm going to be here for at least the next three years, which was a bit in doubt, depending on how that all turned out. So that's very fun for me, get to keep living here in such a, a magically oriented little city. You know, it's just a wonderful hodgepodge where all the, the mysterious frequencies and powerful currents of the universe collide and coalesce and form a beautiful bricolage, a, a hurly-burly, a wonderful ballyhoo of mystical this and that. But enough about me, let's talk about Plague Magic. Today's Plague Magic Minute comes to us from Culpepper's 
The complete herbal, to which is now added upwards of 100 additional herbs with a display of their medicinal and occult qualities physically applied to the cure of all disorders incident to mankind, to which are now first annexed the English physician enlarged and key to physique, with rules for compounding medicine according to the true system of nature, forming a complete family dispensary and natural system of physic by Nicholas Culpepper, MD, to which is also added upwards of 50 choice receipts selected from the author's last legacy to his wife, a new edition with a list of the principal diseases to which the human body is liable, and a general index illustrated by engravings of numerous British herbs and plants correctly colored from nature. The Lord hath created medicines out of the earth, and he that is wise will not abhor them. Ecclesiastes 38.4, London, Thomas Kelly, 17, Paternoster Row, etc., and so on, and this, of course, came out in the uh, year of our Lord, uh, 1850, I think, if I am reading the Roman numerals correctly. So, Culpepper's Herbal, and what herb do we turn to in Culpepper's Herbal? Why, none other than Angelica. And in it, you know, Culpepper does this sort of long conversation about, you know, why is it called Angelica? Isn't this ridiculous? Why are we calling things by these religious names it seems sort of blasphemous apparently this plant used to also be called the holy ghost uh, or the herb of the holy ghost but anyway um culpeper admonishes us that it is an herb of the sun in leo and so that is the best time to pick it and culpeper tells us a water distilled from the root simply as steeped in wine and distilled in a glass is much more effectual than the water of the leaves and this water Drank two or three spoonfuls at a time, easeth all pains and torments coming of cold and wind, so that the body may be not bound, and taken with some of the root in powder at the beginning, helpeth with the pleurisy, as also all other diseases of the lungs and breast, as coughs, phthysic, and shortness of breath, and a syrup of the stalks do the like. It helps pains of the colic and stranguary and stoppage of the urine, procureth women's courses and expelleth the afterbirth, openeth the stoppings of the liver and spleen, and briefly easeth and discusseth all windiness and inward swellings. So very much a sort of cure-all, but especially for things of the lungs worth giving a go. Unless, of course, you're pregnant, in which case it might actually threaten the pregnancy. So thing to watch out for there. And also what's interesting is that Culpepper uh, tells us that wild angelica is not so effectual as the garden variety, although it may be safely used to all the purposes aforesaid. So it does seem like Culpepper would want us to go to some sort of angelica farmer. You know, maybe this is a situation where store-bought is actually better instead of just fine than the homemade version. Anyway, so that is our Plague Magic Minute. Big fan of Culpepper. I really appreciate an old book of herbs that doesn't just tell you what they're good for, but also what planets to sort of say hello to when you're picking them out of the ground. Here's my interview with Andrew. We get into cycles, astrology, and what to do in the age of air, and especially given what that might mean for us based on past ages of air and the cyclical nature of history. Is time a flat circle? No, probably not. It's a bit of a gyre, which is a bit different. I said that so confidently, I actually don't know how time is shaped, but I feel like it's a gyre. It seems like a gyre. A widening gyre, even if we want to just completely cosine Yates, which, you know, I wonder if that's one of the classic dichotomies or will be in the same way that people used to be like, oh, you can be a Rolling Stones person, or you can be a Beatles person, or, you know, you can be into chocolate, or you can be into peanut butter. You know, are you into Yates or are you into Crowley? I know it's, I know it's officially supposed to be Crowley, but like, 
if Ozzy Osbourne says Crowley, who am I to argue with the dude who did Crazy Train? I'm I, no one. That's who I am. And speaking of who people are, Andrew Watt is an artist, a designer, a philosopher, an astrologer, a magician, and a U.S. Fencing Association certified fencing coach. And we had a really wonderful conversation. I, you know, spoilers, we don't actually get into fencing. I, I just like that little detail. But we do get into astrology and a bunch of the other stuff. So we had a really wonderful talk. I do hope you enjoy it. I can speak about most of it in some detail. But I do want to start out by pointing out that I was a middle school teacher and I'm not by any means a, a serious scholar of this. I don't have a PhD in magical studies. I'm no Al Cummins or... Dr. Francis Young around this stuff. I mean, that's entirely... I mean, you know, it's one of those things where it is interesting to sort of see that there are people who have really jumped into the sort of professional side of this in terms of, like, being specifically, like, an academic around magical topics. And it's really lovely to see that, but it's also nice to see that people like Al Cummins or, or Francis Young aren't sort of hiding away from the rest of us as they do those things. That... It feels like much more like a sort of brackish marsh, slowly transitioning from professional scholar to, I don't know, uh, someone who's dabbling in, in trying to figure out which crystal is which at a shop, as opposed to there being like really strict demarcations. Yeah, I think that that's, a, that's sort of an interesting way to come at it, is, is the fact that there are classifications and distinctions. You know, this particular stone is... Is quartz, well, is it which of the six different types of quartz is it? Uh, you know, it has a tinge of purple. Does that make it an amethyst or is it something else? And, you know, this this notion of fine gradations and precise divisions is something that Mercury is famous for, but at the same time, there's a continuum that separates these things and unites them at the same time. It's a very... It's a very mercurial idea itself that we need to be very precise and careful about our our distinguishing categories and yet recognize the whole at the same time. If there is any figure I can picture sort of saying, well, yeah, that thing I said is true, but when you think about it, the opposite is also exactly correct. <laughs> yes. Gosh, big fan. Big fan of Mercury. Okay, so let's let's maybe start the interview proper, though. Who knows? We've been I've been recording for a little bit, so maybe we can we'll use some of that. But so I was listening as part of my research for this to an interview that you did on My Chemical Bromance that came out in February of 2019, and you said something on there that that felt kind of synchronistic to right now for me because you know this was you know before our current lockdown and and plague situation was just a twinkle in the eye of fate. And you said that while magic belongs to Mercury, the higher parts of the soul and sort of contemplation are more connected to Saturn. And this has felt like such a Saturnine year. And it felt synchronicitous, especially today, just because last night I was was showing some friends an album that I thought was sort of a song of Saturn. And I, I was thinking... You know, since people have, have placed our current predicament in the context of Saturn, especially Saturn moving into Aquarius and other sorts of Saturn business, has this year changed your relationship to Saturn or to contemplation? Wow, that's a very, 
that that's a very deep question to start with. All right. Uh, yes, there is an album. It is by the Marini Consort. It's called On the Heavenly Spheres, and it's quotations from Marsilio Ficino and music that Marsilio Ficino either composed or identified as having a, a planetary influence. And the section that that begins Saturn says, Saturn is the highest, most exalted, and stable of all the planets. He cannot easily signify the common lot of the human race, but rather an individual set apart from others, divine or brutish, blessed or bowed down with extreme misery. Right? So Saturn is is very much the power of the moment. Here we are, we are separated from the common lot of the human race, which is to interact, to communicate, to to be in the world, to engage with others. All of that is part of the truth of what it means to be human. And yet there is a lucky percentage of the populace which is able to stay at home, to hide from the world, to be set apart from others, and live a relatively easy existence. You know, they're, they may be challenged by the new normal. They may be challenged living in, in their household under one roof with kids remotely attending school and all of that. But there's a luckiness there, too. And then there's another half of the population, which is stuck going to work every day, earning minimum wage, living in substandard conditions, stressed out about whether or not they're going to get sick, dealing with the maskless people out in the world, and potentially suffering from extreme misery. They don't know whether they're going to get sick, they don't know whether any family members are going to get sick, and they're aware that they're exposed and at risk in a way that a lot of other people aren't. So Saturn, as well, deals in these, what was it that was described recently, the K-shaped economic recovery, that a substantial amount of, of rewards going to people who already have a lot, and, and a substantial amount of misery going to people who don't have a lot. And that is a very Saturnian thing. So yeah, I've I've deepened my relationship with Saturn this year, at least in part, because I happen to be on the lucky side of that equation. Now, there are, there are problems in my life. You know, my partner and I are in the process of having to move in the middle of a pandemic. We have to be out of our apartment by April. So that's neither of us is really looking forward to that. And it's hard to find a place right now because everybody is tenaciously clinging to rental properties and to purchasable properties. So there's that. But I also know people who have gotten sick from COVID and who have stressed out about whether they're going to get a short-term version of the illness or a long-term version of the illness or whether it's going to kill them. So it is it is a Saturnine time where you are confronted with questions of mortality and security and whether or not you can maintain a stable boundary between yourself and the world. You know, this idea of boundaries actually, you know, we talk about the new normal and I would presume that there's no really going back to whatever life was like before COVID because, you know, even if all the material conditions somehow magically became identical to what they were before then you know we're all sort of changed we're going to carry this experience within us um sort of like i feel like this is going to be our sort of version of of you know people talking about their grandparents 
you know, saving every single crust of bread because they grew up during the depression or something like that, where you never, circumstances change, but you never change your relationship to them. But I am, I'm interested because there's a, there's a conjunction between Saturn and Jupiter coming up in December 21st, December 21st. And like, you know, we are moving into an age of Aquarius, I suppose, or at least we're moving into sort of an air sign triplicity, but could you talk about, about this, this sort of age we're moving into? Cause I mean, you know, we, we, this, this is an old astrological concept. This is um, something that also appears in the orbital. Like where, like what is happening to us? Where are we going? That is, that's a great question. I was a school teacher, as I said, near the beginning. Uh, and the job of a middle school teacher is to tell stories. Well, I think that's what the job of a middle school teacher is. Nowadays, I work as a professional astrologer and as a soist and a, and a consultant of various kinds. And a lot of what I do is give advice. So I'll start with that. Now let's back up and let's look at this idea of the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction. The Jupiter-Saturn conjunction has been used for at least 1,200 years, possibly longer, as a timing device for understanding what's called judicial astrology or mundane astrology, the astrology of nations, countries, kingdoms, states, and empires. Do the stars have anything to say about what's happening in large-scale time. Modern 20, 20th and 21st century astrology was not hugely big on this. Ronald Reagan, of course, famously used an astrologer, possibly just because Nancy Reagan told him to, and picked times for making favorable connections with his audience, for making big speeches and announcements, and also picked times that were unfavorable to his opponents for debating them or appearing on stage with them, which I thought was a very interesting kind of choice. So that's that's sort of the way that political astrology plays out. In the English Civil War, there were astrologers on both sides presenting why the heavens favored their case or why it favored somebody else's case. And a large portion of this is that big conjunctions that occur on fairly regular cycles become important for defining large ages, right? Your conjunction or your birth chart and my chart, they only define 80 or 90 years at a time maximum. You know, there was that woman in the south of France who lived for 126 years, but most of us don't get that much time. But national charts can last for a long time. And one of the biggest patterns that medieval and and earlier astrologers noticed, mostly Arabs or Jews working in Arabic-speaking lands like Persia and Iraq under Dara al-Islam, noticed that this conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter occurs every 20 years, and that it appears to define what those 20 years look like. So we've got one of these conjunctions happening on December 21st, and in theory, that's going to define what the next 20 years looks like. They also notice something else, that because how these Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions occur, they will occur in the three signs of Earth for about 200-ish years. They will occur in the three signs of, of air for about 200-ish years. They will occur in the three signs of water for about 200-ish years. They will occur in the 
fire sign for about 200-ish years. So you'll get 10 to 14 of these 20-year cycles occurring, and all of them will be in signs of exactly the same element as it's defined, right? That's the, that's the basic structure. So the whole cycle, more or less, takes 960 years to go through all four elemental signs and to hit all 12 signs of the zodiac. And then it repeats, not in exactly the same way, not in exactly the same place, but the cycle does repeat. And we're about to make one of these shifts from an age of Earth to an age of air. So that's that's the basic gist of it. Let's look at that in a little bit more detail. Again, my area of expertise was world history and sort of giving sixth and seventh graders a, a large overview of this. If we look at now, this air age actually began in 1980 or 1981 when we had a triple conjunction in Libra in December, March, and July of 1980 and 1981. So first they had a conjunction on December 31st of 1980. Both of them were direct. Both of them went retrograde. They had a second conjunction on March 4th of 1981, and then they turned direct and they met up again on July 24th of 1981. We think about that decade or those two decades that followed that, and that's really when the Internet became a public phenomenon, right, about halfway through that 20-year period in the early 1990s. And it was sort of a common thing to start wondering when Internet was going to come to your neighborhood or even to your own house by something other than a modem line by about 1996, 1997. And then the next time that there was a conjunction, because the retrograde cycle had played out in certain ways, that next conjunction occurred in May of 2000 in Taurus. So we started up a new chunk of Earth energy. But this next conjunction on December 21st of 2020, that period lasts until 2219. You know, everyone who is alive today is uh, is probably not going to be around for that unless there's some significant change in medical technology. There is one of these 20-year periods where we're going to have a little taste of what the water age is going to be like after that, which starts in 2059 and ends in 2079. But again, I'm not planning on being around for that one. <laughs> right? So that's that's the, the basic framework. If we look back in time, we may in fact see that air ages have certain things in common with one another. Let's go back to the previous one. The previous air age before our own began in November of 1186 AD and ended again with a little chunk of of earth and some chunks of water in there in 1425 AD. So it encompassed the era of Gothic cathedral building. It encompassed the era of the Black Death hitting Europe. It encompassed the Mongol conquest of the northern parts of China, the eastern parts of Europe, and substantial chunks of the eastern part of the House of Islam, the Islamic empire that spread from 
Spain all the way into what is now Iran, Persia, Afghanistan. We have monastic movements arising in places like India and in Europe, where you'll have a number of independent abbeys, each of which has their own hierarchy and head, but they're nodes in a network, and they trade letters and communicate ideas back and forth, and they're trading both technology and information, and they become storehouses of knowledge. You have an extremely multivalent world. You have a world in which there are numerous political entities that are successors to existing empires. China comes apart for a period in there and devolves into a, a period of warring kingdoms. I don't think that's the technical name for the era, but there's a, there's a period in there where China is not a unified nation. There's this dream of reuniting the Roman Empire, but it's coming... It, it's got the Holy Roman Empire, which consists of numerous principalities and states. There is the Reconquista in Spain, where Spain is trying to reassemble itself and doesn't really succeed until 1492. There is this effort on the part of the Portuguese to develop skills of navigation and to learn how to navigate the Atlantic so that they're not cut off from the rest of Europe and maybe find some way of getting to India and somewhere in there, they probably discover Brazil, right? So there's learning to master the wind going on during this period of time. And windmill power starts to become important in the Netherlands during this period, you know, to power the pumps that keep the water out. So it's this incredible era of technological development, but also tremendous amounts of political independence of one region from another. <clears throat> Is it superficial and facile to say, I don't know, look at the current political climate in the United States, where it seems like there's sort of an increasing balkanization of the country? And I know this is, you know, largely an artificial um, result of or this is a result of the artificial sectioning off of states by the Electoral College. And so really, it's it's much less divided in that particular sort of way than it might it might appear on the the maps that people have been looking at recently but like does it seem appropriate to the transition into an era of air for america and perhaps other nations to slowly start to descend into separateness because i mean we also see like i think there's some some trouble with you know the eu with brexit and all that and then a number of international agreements seem to be kind of falling apart a little bit do you do you see this as having the hallmarks of air or is this something else do you think when we talk about elemental air what comes to mind ethereal qualities and things that are difficult to bind together so i guess yeah yeah so you know air is warm and moist right water is cold and moist earth is cold and dry fire is hot and dry, but air is moist and, and hot or moist and warm in terms of the qualities. It is active, right? It has, it has an energy. We don't know how to make the wind blow. We can artificially stimulate it with fans. There's that old joke, of course, about the butterfly flaps its wings in Singapore and, and my girlfriend leaves me. That's a poem by, um, Bill McMillan of Worcester, Massachusetts. But air has this has an energy and a quality to it, right? Earth just sits there 
And in an Earth age, the empires that exist are going to try to control territory. They're going to try to rule over places. They want to have boots on the ground. And it's interesting to me that the start of the Earth Age occurred in 1802, right? The current Earth Age that's ending in December of this year began in 1802 and coincides roughly with the Industrial Revolution, with the development of coal, oil, and natural gas as energy resources, with the development of atomic energy, with the capacity to learn how to manipulate matter and energy, with the overarching interest in physics as the primary and principal discipline of science. These are all things that are connected with Earth, is trying to understand Earth. And if you talk to people who live on the margins right now, one of the ways that they describe the modern, quote-unquote, normal world is that it's very square, which is one of the habits or, or characteristics of Earth. I mean, Plato described Earth as an element, as being represented by the cube, you know, six squares arranged to contain a volume of space. And what does a cube do? It sits there. It doesn't bounce around. It comes to rest and it stays at rest. So there's sort of a torpor, if you will, that sets in around Earth ages. Things get done a certain way. Things look normal in a certain way. And the goal is to create staidness and stability. But as you pointed out, air is ethereal. It is designed to travel in any which way. It is, it is intentionally capable of traveling at great speed or very lightly and very easily. It's invisible to the eye. You can't really tell how it's changing things or what's changing. And the breeze today is actually the herald of the hurricane three days from now. If we go back to air ages, you know, not the one that began in 1186, but the one that began before that in 332 AD. And thanks to the wonders of modern computation, we can say that it was November 28th at about 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> By our own, our own modern calculations. Who, who among us cannot remember where we were at 2.30 in the morning on that day? <laughs> November 28th to 3.32 AD. Oh, we're coming up on the anniversary. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> you can release the episode on the anniversary of the, of the 3.32 AD conjunction. That one was in Libra. And it corresponds, at that point in history, I know considerably more about what's going on in Europe than anywhere else, partly because the record-keeping is, I won't say better, but certainly different, more easily accessible to a middle school teacher from the middle of nowhere. But if you look at the history of that era in terms of the Roman Empire, Constantine the Great is trying to hold the empire together. It's just coming out of a major civil war that has had not four, but six different contenders for the throne. And Constantine is the one who comes out on top. But it's become clear that Rome is no longer suitable as the empire's capital. It's too far from the east, which is where all the taxes comes from. It's too far from the border of the Danube, and it's on the wrong side of the mountains from the Rhine. And 
it's too difficult to understand what's going on in the empire. And it's too far away from their other civilized neighbor, the Parthians, who are resurgent at the time. And who are the Parthians? Well, they're these horse lords that they're the descendant nation of the Persians. And their big thing is the Parthian shot, right? Getting on horseback and appearing to ride away from your enemy, luring the infantry out of position and then leaning backwards while still riding and getting in a shot and taking out your chasing opponent. So a wind that appears to be blowing in one direction, but is actually blowing in another. A fast moving cavalry force, which is capable of changing direction. The Empire has 20 years of sort of being stable, but not entirely so. If you look at Roman architecture from the 330s and 340s, what you will see is that the size of the stones that they're using have gone from Volkswagen one and a half ton blocks to small stones that can be carried by hand because at some level they've lost the technology. They've lost the wherewithal to build big things. Everything has to be done in smaller units. 350 to 370, 390 is a period of great stability. The empire converts from being tolerant of Christians to having Christianity be the official religion. I think that happens in 381 AD. But by 390, things are really unstable. They're fighting a series of wars along the frontier with Germany, with the Dacians into what is now Bulgaria and upper southeastern Europe. The Parthians are definitely starting to encroach on Roman territory and pushing the Romans out of upper Mesopotamia and into what is now Turkey. And then in 410, just a year before the next set of conjunctions in Gemini, the city of Rome is sacked by Attila the Hun, and a barbarian army has four days in the ancient capital, stealing whatever is nailed down and melting the nails where they can be melted down, setting a fire inside of some buildings in order to melt the bronze tiles directly off the roof. And this air age goes from 332 until with again, chunks of earth and chunks of air in there until 670 AD. So not 200 years, but bits and pieces of 300 years. And if we think back to our understanding, again, our our sort of middle school level of world history, this is not a favorable time for Europe. It's also not really a favorable time in China, from what I understand. It's the age of the barbarians. It's the age when the Goths, the Visigoths, the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, the Huns, the Angles, the Saxons basically ride roughshod over the Roman Empire and carve it up into its component kingdoms, right? And we get Castile and we get Aragon. We get Islamic or Moorish Spain, the, the Caliphate of Cordoba. Well, that emerges later. That emerges about 711 or 714 and the water age has begun by then. But we still see evidence of collapse and the emergence of successor states. Here we've got two for two. In the last two air ages, what we see is solid, stolid, stable empires 
coming apart quite rapidly at the seams despite efforts to hold them together. To quote William Butler Yeats, the center cannot hold. In the last two air ages, that's what we've seen, is the empires come apart and what emerges is sort of a node and network kind of environment. We're going to have smaller political units. We have the emergence of monastic or other forms of voluntary poverty movements. And we see the emergence of communities that are there to preserve knowledge and technology, but are also deeply interested in what's going on inside the mind. So do you face the prospect of entering something similar to that in our current state with optimism or with something perhaps closer to dread? Like, do you see this as an opportunity or do you see this as a problem? It's the gif of the two cartoon characters from, I think it's the road to El Dorado. Both, both is good. <laughs> like, I, I think that there's a need for both dread and equanimity, right? If you believe in reincarnation and you believe in sort of directed reincarnation, at some level we chose to be in this. I'm not talking about necessarily choosing to be disabled or to be physically challenged or emotionally or mentally challenged. I'm talking about, oh, you know, the next the next round of life, I can be born into the 1990s and or or 1960s and I get to, you know, live a life of peace and wealth and prosperity when the the American empire is at its height, or I can be born into the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s when things start to be a little bit more rumbly. <laughs> or I can be born a little bit later. I don't know that I I believe that, but I think that at some level my inclinations towards the idea of reincarnation lead me to assume that at some level I may not have chosen the specific circumstances of my life, but I chose to be here. So I have to face that. And that means that I have to face it with a certain degree of equanimity and be prepared. I like knowing things. I like knowing about things. I, as I said, my professional career is increasingly geared towards giving professional level advice on a number of different subjects. I guess I believe that being somebody who can give advice on a broad number of subjects matters in a world that what you thought was normal is in the process of coming apart and and getting blown in the wind. I also face it with a bit of dread. I hinted at my age at the beginning. I'm 50. This air age, which we are about to start in December is going to take 20 years to really get going, maybe 40, which means that I'm going to be facing this in my 80s and 90s. And I don't know about anybody else, but it's really hard to imagine nursing homes and retirement communities, which are among the stablest and stolidest and most orderly of kinds of communities, are really going to be able to survive an age in which normalcy, as they know it, comes apart. So what does that look like? <laughs> like everybody thinks that they get to face the apocalypse when they're young and fit and 35 <laughs> or or 25. And the idea of having to live through an apocalypse where you're in your 50s or 60s is a very different kind of proposition. It's worth thinking about. It has given you a great deal of time to prepare, though, which 
I am curious, how do you propose that someone would prepare for a thing like this? So, so you, you mentioned being well-versed in a, in a variety of things as opposed to being overly specialized. What sorts of knowledge would be helpful? I mean, the, the first, I mean, I've, I've seen a bunch of people sort of move toward the idea of like, I need to learn how to bake my own bread and make bullets myself. And I don't know, learn which herbs are good for typhoid, but like, what, what kind of knowledge should we be reaching toward? Oh boy. That's like the $200 million question. And I think that the answer is that there is no one answer. I wish that it were easy, but let's look at the air age that lasts from 332 AD until 670 or 690 AD. If we look at that air age, it's a dark age. And I don't mean in the sense that things are grim and horrible. I mean that it is an age in which not a lot of information survives about what actually happened. What we do know is that there were bands of roving bandits or gangs of roving soldiers who were stealing stuff, setting up camp, establishing themselves in an area and sort of demanding tribute. And that gradually those folks became the ancestors of feudal lords. And those guys were on top for the next 200 to 500 years, except that the first guys didn't get that, right? The first guys to turn to banditry and to being thugs wilding in the countryside started that process too early. They decided that society was collapsing and they ran out to go sack a village and terrorize the countryside and set themselves up as new feudal lords. And the remnants of the old empire came along and squashed them flat. So I look at that and I say, okay, it does not make sense to join some kind of a prepper doomsday cult. Because if you think that you're going to have to deal with a real world example of the zombie apocalypse in the next 60 years, that seems unlikely. Empires don't come apart that fast. Frequently, they do come apart that fast. Sometimes they come apart with startling speed. I mean, the Soviet Union came apart during this foretaste of the air age that we had between 1980 and 2000. And a whole new gang of leaders arose that didn't really have apparent connections to, to the old leadership. But it turns out that a lot of the folks that are currently in charge in Russia were the mid-level fulfillment layer or functional layer that actually delivered the goods to the policymaking levels of the Communist Party, right? It was the action-oriented managers that wound up in charge. They became the oligarchs. They became the billionaires that run Russia today. So... The new guard is likely to have strong connections to the existing power structure rather than be the upstarts out in the countryside, at least for the next 60, 80, 100 years. It is the wrong time in the timeline to be picking up your guns and making plans to form a bandit gang. You will succeed for a little while, but <laughs> those gangs have a tendency to get crushed like bugs before their careers get too far along. So that's my thinking on that front. I think that you can make a choice that the civil power, the secular power, as this air age writer 
You may have heard of St. Augustine of Hippo defined it as the secular power in the city of God. And he wrote the city of God literally as the city was under siege by, I think, the Vandals. It might have been one of the other major barbarian armies, but I think it was the Vandals. Like he wrote that while his city was under attack. And he recognized that the secular authorities were not coming to save him or his city. At about the same time, the Roman population living in Great Britain wrote to the emperor and they said, we are being attacked by the Saxons and the Jutes and the Angles, and we would very much like your assistance in expelling these barbarians. And the Roman emperor at the time, who was Julian something, said, great, I hereby repeal the Julian law that prohibits anyone living in Britain who isn't a member of the army from carrying weapons. Defend yourselves. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. You, you, it is no longer against the law for you to carry weapons on your own behalf, right? <laughs> and that was that was their solution to a foreign invasion, was you now have the legal right to defend yourselves that you didn't have before. <laughs> it's very much that tuxedo mask meme of like, my work here is done, but you didn't do anything. <laughs> right. You didn't do anything except change a little bit of wording. You took the word not out and replaced it with must. Uh, <laughs> all Britons must carry weapons instead of no Britons may carry weapons. It's called leadership. It's called leadership. On the other hand, you look around now and you realize that some of the things that are missing in terms of what the secular power offers is the ability to coordinate a response, the ability to manage alternative medicine, right? We have, my partner and I have friends who are in, in the medical industry, and right now they're under an enormous amount of strain. They're more likely to make mistakes because of COVID. The hospitals are filling up. And right now, I don't know anybody who willingly wants to go to the dentist or the doctor for anything that isn't absolutely necessary. So how do you take care of yourself or your neighbors if there are laws that prohibit you from doctoring, right? We have laws in the United States and elsewhere in the world that say that if you haven't gone to medical school for 10 to 12 to 15 years, you may not diagnose and you may not prescribe. That's a problem. We have laws in the United States that say that, you know, if you don't have certain kinds of certification, you haven't been investigated you're not really supposed to be educating other people's children. That may, in fact, be an appropriate law to have. It, it may not in an age when things are coming apart. But things don't have to come apart just because there's disorder, right? The tech industry itself thrives on the idea of disrupting existing business models. Well, there's this huge business model where you need to go and see a $400 an hour lawyer in order to get a will written or to have a divorce decree finalized, or to seek redress for a contract. And it will cost you an enormous amount of money in a court of law to solve problems that only a court of law can handle. And this happened in the air age at the end of the Roman Empire. This is one of the reasons that Christianity became so popular, because if you were a Christian, you could go to the local bishop and say, 
Caecilius, this other Christian, has robbed me and refuses to pay his fair share of the goods that he's sold. And I sold them to him at a discount because he's also a Christian, but he hasn't even paid me what was owed after the discount. And then the bishop would say, Caecilius, you have to pay or you'll be excommunicated. And that was a much bigger deal than being fined by the Roman Empire at that point. The Roman Empire wouldn't necessarily ever get around to collecting the taxes or the fines. But if you couldn't show up and take communion at church, that was a big deal. <laughs> and that could really ruin your reputation and standing in the community in a way that having the Romans tell you that you should really pay your, your bills. <laughs> so medicine, law, education, personal finance, now virtually all kinds of accounting get done through centralized systems. But we know that passwords can be hacked. We know that financial information can be stolen from banks. Do we have to go back to local networks? Do we have to go back to local systems of payment and repayment? And do we have to go back to local rather than centralized accounting? Those are enormous questions, enormous questions. And the answer is, it's too early for so many of those things. It's not the right point in the timeline, right? We are at the beginning of an era of change and of stable systems breaking down, but we are nowhere near the end of the beginning. We're not even at the middle. We're at the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. And the, the result is that it becomes about play. It becomes about experimentation. It becomes about learning skills, not necessarily because they will be useful in the age of the apocalypse, but because you have no idea what will be useful and what won't be. Should you learn computer programming? I don't see why not. I think there will still be computers in the rest of the 21st century. Is it a useful skill? Will people still need it? Yes. Will they need it even more if the network goes down in parts of the country or parts of the world for long periods of time? Yes. <laughs> I mean, what if you had to build a word processor from scratch because your part of the country couldn't connect to Microsoft headquarters in Seattle for six years? That is actually that. It's funny. I keep thinking about that. I think it was an episode of the Twilight Zone where someone goes back in time and they explain, you know, I am from the future. We have things like television sets where I am from. And they say, cool, that's amazing. How did those work? And he said, and they realize that they have no idea how any of it works. And so they're just like, you're, you're lying. This is a thing that you've made up. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know how almost like anything more complicated than a toaster is a total mystery to me. There was a guy in Britain a few years ago. It, it was sort of an interesting book. If I think about it a bit, I, his name may come to me who asked that very thing and said, I wonder how long it would take for me just to build a toaster by myself. And he went down into mines and he mined the right ores and, you know, under the guidance of other miners, of course. But he went as a journalist and researched all of these various technologies. He built his own toaster and it worked for one slice of bread. <laughs> But that was his slice of bread. No one can take... <laughs> that was his slice of bread, and nobody can take it away from him. There's a parallel story in... Who's the author? I want to say that it's Mark Kurlansky, but I'm not sure that that's right. But he wrote a book about the guy who came up with the first geological map of the world. 
and it's apparently hanging in the Royal Geological Society in London now. But he mapped what kind of rock and stone was under every single hill and countryside in all of England and demonstrated that you would only find certain kinds of metal or coal or ore under certain kinds of stone and made it much easier as a result to go digging for the resources that Britain needed at the time. So there's there's that sense of becoming the holder of a body of knowledge. And I think that that's, you know, the next 20 years, this first air conjunction is taking place in Aquarius. And Aquarius is the idea of fixed air or a fixed body of knowledge. And I, I think you can't go wrong by picking some more or less fixed body of knowledge, some fixed body of information, and becoming an expert in that skill set or that set of techniques or learn that set of tools to a high degree because that allows you to have specialization and it allows you to have a hands-on skill and it allows you to have a grasp on doing something for yourself that is currently done by a wider society. Blacksmithing is an example of this, right? There's a very limited amount of information about metalworking. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, there's an enormous amount of stuff that you need to know about metalworking if you're going to be casting cannon or building guns from scratch. But on the other hand, you know, you can probably learn the basic techniques of blacksmithing in three or four or five years, and you can become reasonably expert in it in 15. Woodworking, sewing, pottery, basket making, all of these things involve a very limited range of techniques that nonetheless grow in the hands of a master who's practiced them for long enough. A friend of mine is engaged in doing exactly this, and he has just recently bought, he's actually bought for the second time, a printing press a printing press from the 1950s that runs on a combination of electricity and mechanical advantage rather than on digital frameworks. And you load it up with movable type and you can print a page. That is that is a fixed body of knowledge too. You know, put the letters in the right order and stamp them onto the page and you're done. But the devil is in the details. Is this what attracted you to? Because I've been I've been looking at your blog and and you've been doing all this this sewing work, that is really lovely. Is that what attracted you to sewing? Was this idea of trying to get into a fixed body of knowledge? Yes, my last job as a school teacher was running a design program, a makerspace inside of the middle school where I taught. I did that for about five years and. During those five years, I was frequently learning a skill on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and teaching it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of the following week. And it was crazy. That sounds exhausting, but also kind of exhilarating. It was exhausting, and it, and it led to problems, which we won't go into here. But it was also very exciting, because I'd go on to YouTube, and I would teach myself how to knit. And I would say, okay, how can I turn this into a program? I wonder if I can teach myself to spin wool. And it turns out that I could, but it took longer than a weekend to do that. But I taught a group of kids how to make knitting needles and then how to knit with them. So the idea was, how do you take raw materials, turn them into tools, and then use the tools to create a thing? 
That is super cool. It it is really cool, and it's there's a a name for it. You're taking first order tools, in this case carpentry tools, to make second order tools, which are tools that you use in a different craft in order to make something else. And there are first order tools, second, third, fourth, fifth, right? Mining equipment pulls ore out of the ground in order to cast it into the proper shapes and then carve and refine those into other tools that make screws and hinges that allow you to create mechanical advantage and wedge systems that allow you to create printing presses and carve movable letters and woodcut illustrations or engravings in order to make a book. There's a lot of different paths from first order tools to second order tools. And Buckminster Fuller wrote about this kind of thing in a book called Critical Path, which was his sort of weird history of the Apollo space program. You know, he was asked to write the history of the Apollo space program. He said, great. And then he discovered that they used ceramic tiles on the bottom of the spacecraft that were made using a formula of ceramic that has been known since at least 4000 BC from Egypt, of course. So, so the history of the space program starts 7,000 years ago. The history of the space program starts with guys who are making baking dishes for the guys who are building the pyramids. (laughs) I mean, that's a simplification of the problem, right? But it still illustrates the scale of the problem, that you have no idea what technologies are going to lead you interesting places. So it's not a bad idea to invest in a technology as a set of skills in order to give yourself a set of expertises that are likely to feed your interest and might turn out to be surprisingly valuable. I mean, if the internet goes down, people will still need books. There was a time in U.S. history where every single town of any size from the Atlantic to the Pacific had a printing press, and it did the newspaper, and they did jobbing. This town would be responsible for arranging to hand print these 12 pages of this particular book, and the next town over would do the next pages, 12, 13 through 24, and the next town over would do... 25 through 48. And that's how you would assemble a multi-hundred-page book, was through this networked arrangement, right? There's a central office that's collecting all of the pages, but they're printed as cottage industry out in the wider world. It's not from the last air age, but this is what happened to Gutenberg. Gutenberg and his partner, whose name I think was Jacob First, got thrown out of Mainz and Nuremberg for their printing press some years after the printing press. The printing press was 1453, and something like 1468, there's a political revolt, and a bunch of the masters and journeymen and apprentices get thrown out of town, including all of the apprentices and journeymen who worked in Gutenberg's shop. They have nowhere to go. So they write to their relatives and they say, hey, can I move in with you? And they say, well, you can't move in with us unless you've got a trade. And they say, well, I happen to know everything that there is to know about printing because I've worked in the only printing shop in Europe. (laughs) And they show up on the front doorsteps of their relatives and their relatives say, "Okay, what do you need? 
so for the first 20 or 30 years of printing, there's only this one printing press in, I think it's in Mainz. And it's tightly controlled by first Gutenberg and then by his partner. And then this political upheaval occurs. And suddenly there are 400 print shops just in Germany. All of the employees left for other towns. The journeymen claimed to be masters because there was no accrediting guild. The apprentices claimed to be journeymen and took on eight or ten new apprentices each. And they built this kind of distributed network. And because the political upheaval had been specifically caused by a Roman Catholic bishop, the vast majority of them were Protestant to the core. <laughs> I think it's H.L. Mencken says that you should never piss off anyone who buys ink by the barrel full. <laughs> I, I want to talk more about about your sewing in particular. But before we get off this idea of, of you know, the eras that are moving, part of Part of why I reached out to you was, of course, you talking about this, and particularly in the context of The Arbital of Magic, which is a lovely book from 1575 that I feel like I talk about a lot on this show in a very sort of elusive way without actually getting into it, because I, I guess I have trouble uh, centering my own interest. But anyway, what does The Arbital have to tell us about this sort of thing, and of what value would The Arbital be to us as we are considering this this deep transition into an airier time? So The Arbital says that time is divided into cycles of 240 years. And each of those cycles is ruled by one of the seven visible planets in turn. I have unfortunately packed my copy of the Arbital. And they sort of code the names of the intelligences of the planets, the intelligent spirits that rule each planet, using different names than the names of the planets as we currently give them. But Essentially, they say, the, the Arbidel says that if the energies that we associate with the planet Jupiter rule this 240-year period, then we're going to see a lot of Jupiterian energy in the way that things are done. And those 240-year periods are further broken down into 40-year periods, I think it is. So each of the other planets gets to be the sort of chief administrator. It's kind of like a constitutional monarchy, right? One planet gets to be the king or queen or sovereign, and then each of the other planets gets 40 years to be the prime minister. If you look around and you see the signs and symbols of a given ruler of that age, if you see the priorities of a given power as being dominant in that age, then that power rules that particular time, and the symbols of the prime minister are probably a little bit more visible. That's not what the Arbitel calls it. That's sort of my own framing of it. And the overarching issue is is the jovial or the, the senior planet or the ruling planet for the 240-year period. And I think that when we first discussed this, the point that I was making at the time was that I think it happened in 1993. So it was 13 years into the first air period that we had beginning in 1980, that we really appeared to be in an age that was ruled by Mercury. Mercury's emblems, if you will, are business, trade, commerce, fraud, medicine, technology, 
specifically communications technology, proliferation of messages and messaging systems of delivering messages, and gay, bi, lesbian, trans, queer identities, right? If we think of the planets, Mercury is the one whose gender is the least clear, I think. Often depicted as a youthful man with a crazy smile, but, you know, usually depicted as skinny and more than a little weird. And I want to be clear, I'm using the word here in the sense of changed or unusual. Mercury also has something of the Dionysian energy in them. And I think that they pronouns are appropriate for Mercury, and I try to use that in my regular astrology column as well. So... If we accept this idea that we are entering into a 240-year, or we've we've been in a 240-year era ruled by your friend and mine, Mercury, how should that orient us in terms of, of things? Should we be sort of looking in ways that we can kind of take advantage of this prevailing wind toward communication and things of that sort? Or is it really a more direct question of saying, like, here's the person to talk to, if I need to get something done, like how can I how can I try to refigure whatever I'm planning to do to make it more amenable to getting the aid of Mercury in some sort of direct petition sort of way? I think that's a great question. I think we have to start off by saying, is Mercury currently prime minister or is Mercury the sovereign? And I don't know the answer to that, but I think that it's a good place to begin. Like when we were having this conversation I don't know, it was two or three months ago now. The thing that was striking me or that I was aware of was that in 1993, I think it was, I was living in Washington, D.C. I was working on Capitol Hill and one of my college friends called me and said, hey, can we come and stay with you? And I said, uh, sure, I'd be delighted to take you around and show you the museums. I understand there's this this big rally in in downtown Washington, so it may be difficult to get around, but if you want to come and stay with me, you're welcome to do that. And this friend said, well, I'm actually coming down specifically in order to go to that rally. I'm gay, this is the March on Washington, and I want to go and I want to be there when a huge number of gay people are being urged to come out of the closet and demonstrate in public in the nation's capital for the very first time. And I was a little taken aback, but I said, sure, why don't you come and and stay with me? And my friend came down and stayed with me. And the next morning I was making them breakfast as they were getting ready to go into the city. And they said, you should come with me. And I said, this is not really my issue. Why is this something that I should care about? And they said, because it's an issue of human rights. And I thought, well, that's a good enough reason. And I went with them to the March on Washington, and it was an extraordinary day. I have never experienced anything like it at any rally then or since. There were sections of the AIDS quilt laid out on the National Mall. There were young people. There were old people. There were clearly people who were rich and, quote-unquote, in the mainstream. There were people who had decided that they were going to go all out and dye their hair pink and blue and purple. But the the vast majority of people who were there were doing their best to show that they were ordinary, that they were normal and that they were there and that they had always been there. And it felt like there were a million people there. I mean, who knows how many there were 
who were actually there. But it felt like being in a crowd of millions of people. Since that day in 1993, one of Mercury's key emblems, which is the idea of many, many colors all together, also known as the rainbow. I don't think there's been a day that has gone by when I haven't seen the rainbow flag where I have been able to avoid encountering news about gay people, bi people, lesbian people, trans people, queer people. It has been in the forefront of the news since 1993. It has been in front of me every single day. And the more that I have come to understand Mercury as being the patron of that category of people, that they, he is there, not he, they, Mercury, are, are their patron in the world. The more that I, I come to buy into that idea, the more obvious it seems that we're living in, a, in an age of Mercury. And corporate power goes with that, too. And so does the the primacy of business in in the world today, as opposed to the old norms of aristocracy or of theocracy. But the idea of oligopoly and monopoly and multinational, multivalent corporate powers and the amount of business fraud in the world and the advances in medicine, all of this combined and make me think we're living in an age of Mercury. You know, 1993 to 2020, that's 27 years. You know, that's more than just a casual level of presence <laughs> and obviousness about it. The other interesting piece of this to me is how much of it reaches back in time. And that's part of the reason why I think we're in a mercurial age that's going to last a whole lot longer than 40 years. The first example that comes to mind is a guy by the name of John Boswell, who wrote a book about same-sex relationships in pre-modern Europe. And it was an examination of, among other things, Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox marriage rights between gay men. John Boswell was a professor at Yale University. He was a gay man. And this book was front page headlines for a while in academic circles because he was demonstrating that Christianity's modern opposition to homosexuality was, in fact, ahistorical, that it had existed there for a long period of time before modern frustrations with it. I forget when the book was published. I'm actually looking it up online now because I don't remember. 1995, so 15 years after the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in 1980. And that Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in 1980 occurred in Libra. I want it to be Gemini, but it's not. <laughs> it feels, I mean, it feels like you've got this this, this sort of, this evidence that, that, that we're in a, a time ruled by Mercury. So what should we do about that? Is it just sort of a question of, of an interpretive lens of like, yes, this is very Mercury. The more Mercury thing is likely to happen than the less Mercury thing. Or is it something where we, sh we could actively in some way take advantage of this or orient ourselves in such a way that, you know, we're going to be more Mercury friendly in, in how we engage with the world? I'll tell you my favorite Mercury working, which is that a number of years ago, I decided that I was going to win the lottery. And you may have read a version of this story on my website because it's there, but I'll, I'll tell it in brief. I decided that I was going to win the lottery. 
in order to win the lottery, you first have to play, right? So at the time, I lived in a small town, and I was walking distance from the convenience store. And some of your listeners may know what a Kamea is, but I'll define it as a magic square. And a magic square is a square that has been divided into a number of smaller squares that add up to certain numbers. The Kamea or magic square of Mercury is a grid of eight by eight squares that contains the numbers from one to 64, and they have been arranged in such a way that each row, each column and diagonal adds up to 260, and all of the numbers in the square add up to 2080. So I paced out my route to this convenience store where I was going to buy the lottery tickets so that it took 2,080 steps each way, front door to the door of the store. Sometimes I had to do like a little bit of a loop in the parking lot in order to get into the store, or I'd have to take really long strides getting back to my apartment because I'd avoided dog poop or whatever and took a few extra steps than I should have. But I did that for eight Wednesdays, and every time that I went, I bought eight lottery tickets for a dollar, because eight is one of Mercury's numbers. So I bought $8 worth of lottery tickets on eight consecutive Wednesdays in the Mercury hour that falls in the afternoon on Wednesdays, and got 64 lottery tickets and waited until the eighth Wednesday and then scratched them all off at the sort of late evening Mercury hour or early morning Mercury hour, depending on how you look at it. Under ordinary circumstances, I think I was supposed to win like $12.65. I spent $64. At a minimum, I should have won something like 12 bucks. I think I got 250. So I was way under. And I thought, well, that's a sign, but it can't be said that I won the lottery. Not in the sense that I had been looking for. Because when I crafted the magic, I crafted the magic that I should have the experience and joy and wonder and excitement of scratching off the lottery ticket and having the winning numbers be on the lottery ticket for a large sum of money. So I didn't worry about how much money the ticket was actually worth, just that I would have the emotional experience connected with scratching off the tickets and discovering the value there. The ninth Wednesday arrives. I say, I've done the spell as I intended to do it. I'm not buying lottery tickets that day. It was Secret Santa Day at school. All of the teachers in my part of the building had secretly traded names with one another. We'd each gotten gifts for one another. I still didn't know who my Secret Santa was, and I get an envelope. I open up the envelope, and inside are two lottery tickets. Pull out a coin out of my pocket, a dime, scratch off the first lottery ticket, and oh my god, the winning number is eight. And I've just won $25,000. You scratch off the other ticket, the winning number this time is four, and I win $35,000. And I think, oh, my God, I'm rich, or at least I can afford to take the car in and get the oil changed. But I have this emotional reaction to this of, oh, my God, I've just 
won the lottery. And not only have I won the lottery, I've won the lottery on a Wednesday immediately after doing all of this amazing magical work for myself that has taken me eight weeks, nine weeks now. So I flip over the tickets and start trying to figure out how I go about redeeming them. And my excitement gradually fades as I get into the technicalities of it and, you know, realize, okay, I have to fill in this address and I have to, you know, fill in this form and go to this website. And and down at the bottom of all of this fine print on the back of the ticket, it says, this is a fake ticket. No financial gift is implied or directed. You've been had, basically. This is a joke. Right. These are fake lottery tickets and there's no supporting organization that will pay off the face value of these certificates. <laughs> I got exactly what I asked for, didn't I? Absolutely. And I guess at the same time, also, like when we talk about about gambling as being under the purview of Mercury, you know, we're not talking about winning at gambling as being a, the, the purview of Mercury, but rather just the quick, the quick changes, the what sudden changes. And this is exactly what I experienced. Right. I I enchanted for this moment of. Of joy and excitement and ecstasy that comes from winning the lottery, of having that excited moment when Publishers Clearinghouse or whatever shows up at your front door with a check for you know, $55,000. And I had that moment. I had that emotional release, that ecstasy of, oh my God, I have, I've actually won a large sum of money using magic to win the lottery. I had that. I had that moment. It was real. The emotional release and the excitement the overbearing joy, the proof that magic had worked was real. And isn't that better than money when you think about it? <laughs> well, if you if you actually delve into it, right, people who win the lottery five years later are miserable. A lot of them wind up committing suicide. They have friends and family coming out of the woodwork demanding that this debt or that debt, real or imaginary, be paid off. They have all sorts of get-rich quick schemes. There are taxes that have to be accounted for. And people make assumptions about having millions of dollars that aren't necessarily true. Near me, there's a huge house that's currently on the market for three and a half million dollars built by some rock star. And as near as I can tell, the story is that this band had one or two albums that were enormously successful. They made a huge amount of money and they built a $14 million house or they spent $14 million building a house that's now really only worth three and a half million. Right. The desires ran far ahead of the reality of the money that they actually had. And I think that this is true, like that Mercury is about business, but Mercury is also about fraud. And that Mercury is about gambling, but he's not necessarily about winning at gambling. They're not necessarily about winning at gambling. Still have to catch myself around that sometimes. One of the classical sources says that Mercury is essentially amoral. It's not to say that they don't have ethics, but they don't have solid rules about do this, not that. It's all reasonable and all of it is open to interpretation in the moment. This silly mortal asked 
for the emotional experience, great. I'm going to give this person the emotional experience of winning the lottery. And it doesn't have to cost Mercury a thing. No actual dollars need to change hands in order for this person to experience this emotional release. <laughs> Which, as you say, may in fact be more valuable. Though it does sort of bring us back to the tuxedo mask meme of my work here is done, but you didn't do anything. <laughs> Which actually, I mean, we've been we've been at this for about an hour and a half, so that might be a place to end it. Um, though I do want to talk to you about sewing and also about your Orphic hymns at some point. So we might have to do another interview in the future if you would be if you would be willing to engage in that. I would be willing to do that, and I'd be delighted to talk with your listeners about that. But since you bring up the Orphic hymn. Let's end with that. If, right. if we are, in fact, in a mercurial age, then it does no harm. And in fact, it may do a bit of good for us to end with some words in favor of Mercury and asking for their assistance. The hymn to Mercury that I wrote, which you can find on my website at andrewbwatt.com under the Neo-Orphic Hymns, which is one of the tabs at the top. Hermes approach and sweet communion lend, Lord of intellect most keenly applied. Increase of prudence and memory lend, make my knowledge and talents deified. For you are like the flying squad of old, joining memory and foresight as one, and harnessing reason and yoked with will. With such tricks you defeated Argus bold, and wooed sacred cows away from the sun. Son of Maya, with winged feet you fly, observing markets and studying games. Thou source of gain by means both fair and sly, lover of all peoples, shaper of names. Physicians call your wisdom to their wards. Bankers grow rich by your interested gaze, while politicians speak sweet oration when you assist them. Happy sing the bards and alchemists also explain your praise for you put words to imagination. Knowledge and intellect like twining snakes circled round the staff of the well-trained mind. Combined, speak wisdom in human phrases, and thus the quicksilver power awakes. The skillful use of symbols men defined. Inventor of tongues, we sing your praises. Angel of Jove and psychopomp of peace, bringer of celestial arts to earth. Bless your converts with intellect's increase, graceful speech, and true knowledge of our worth. Andrew, thank you so much. This has been really lovely. It has been lovely. I really enjoyed having a chance to talk about some of this stuff and put it out for a wider audience to think about. Many thanks to Andrew. If you want to check out Andrew's work, learn more about him and what he's up to, you can go to his website at andrewbwatt.com. And he's also got an Etsy, Water Mountain Studio, and I will put links to those in the show notes. And you know, talking to Andrew, what can we take away from this idea that we might be living in a long-term 
mercurial age. And I think there are sort of three things to keep in mind. One of them is that this is an opportunity for us to be maybe a bit more holistic in general with how we think about magical operations. I think there's a tendency to sort of say, this thing is most like the purview of this planet, so I'm doing it with this planet. When conceivably, there's a way that each planet can contribute in its own way to any kind of working, you know. You might think of this as like a love spell, but why not throw Mars in there for just having the get up and go to go talk to somebody? And so thinking about that in terms of Mercury in particular, but sort of all the other planets, like how could I do this with something that would be a bit more sideways, I think is worth considering. For example, I think people generally associate curses with Saturn or Mars, the two malefics, but you could try to work up a Mercurial curse, you know, instead of writing a very small cameo of Saturn on your landlord's parking space so that you curse their car, you could call upon Hermes Psychopompus, Hermes Chthonios, Hermanubis, one of the sort of, you know, necromantic Hermes types to put a ghost of a restless dead in your landlord's car. Just really haunt the, haunt the hell out of that car. Or conceivably, you know, the PGM has working for a Hermes idol and warns not to use a red lamp with the Hermes idol, that this is very dangerous. So you could work into a curse, the use of that red lamp. You know, it's it's touched the big red button from, from the end of Men in Black a little bit. The second thing I think to keep in mind here is that because Hermes and Mercury are associated with magic in particular, I think there is a potential concern that we might think if Mercury is in power, then we as magicians are in power. And I think we can certainly call upon Mercury to empower our workings, but if Mercury is in power, you know, the standard thing with Mercury is that Mercury is good with good and bad with bad. And we have seen that as established powers take on a more mercurial form, this doesn't make them necessarily better or our friends. You know, there have been a ton of very mercurial politicians in the last few years. You know, Reagan was an actor and a spokesperson for GE, so someone associated with communication and, like, technological communication. You have, you know, Donald Trump is a game show host, so there's really nothing more sort of mercurial than a game show host, except for someone who does a lot of fraud, which also him. But you also look at, say, George H.W. Bush, who was deeply embedded with the U.S. intelligence services. And so, you know, secrets, lies, uh, clandestine murder traveling from place to place to do nefarious dealings. And so if power takes on a more mercurial form, that doesn't necessarily make it our friend. This is certainly something to watch out for, right? We already have examples of this, of, of power used mercurially that we can be sort of on guard for. Andrew pointed out that during the protests that have been happening of late, there's been a big emphasis from the powers that be that, you know, they're using non-lethal crowd control techniques rubber bullets for example which of course actually can kill you and so there's this idea of like a mercurial playing with words or you have the mercurial application of what we might call biopolitical powers as opposed to sovereign power so instead of power being exclusively something that is wielded by the state in the form of you know violence that is either done or withheld you know they can hit you with a stick or not there's also biopolitical power where there's this question of like who gets medicine who doesn't, that sort of thing, which is very mercurial, and so a thing definitely to watch out for, as power potentially takes on an increasingly mercurial form.
The third is something about the nature of magic under Mercury as well. You know, Mercury is associated with necromancy. Mercury is associated with communication. But Mercury is also associated with the geomantic figure of Albus, the scholar, the archivist. And so I think this is certainly a time where I think there is a push toward necromancy, but also toward talking about magic and studying magic. And we've had this beautiful explosion of research and publication and increased knowledge of the theory of magic. How are things done? What is the history? Who was doing what 200 years ago? And this is all incredibly useful and fascinating. But in that, I think there is a subtle, subtle little trap that we should avoid. And that is, of course, reading 20 books about ritual magic will teach you a lot, but not as much, necessarily, as actually reading half of a book and then just trying it and seeing what happens. So let us not let research be the enemy of action in this mercurial age. You know, I, I'm, I'm no better than anybody else. I am constantly buying books as a substitute for reading books and reading books as a substitute for doing what happens in the books. But this, I think, might be, there might be a particular wind in that direction during a mercurial age. Because I think Mercury is very much associated with the knowledge of magic, the skills of magic, but maybe not necessarily the doing of magic except necromancy and like global pandemic whole lot of restless dead about what one would expect so this might be a very good time if you're not really keen on necromancy why not get involved uh talk to your local necromancer see how you can give your time and resources towards the cause of raising the dead or at least talking to them and maybe trying to smooth things over if they're very upset this has been witch hassle Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support the show, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash witchhassle. And feel free, please, to review the show on iTunes or any of the other podcast websites. And if you want to just, like, yell at me on Twitter, go to at uh, witchhassle or at Cooper Wilhelm, because I am Cooper Wilhelm, and I managed to snag it. Because as far as I can tell, there's only one other Cooper Wilhelm in America, and I beat him to Twitter. So take that, other Cooper. I hope you are listening, and I hope you feel that I have defeated you. Is that the note I'm going to end this episode on? I think it is. Okay, this has been Witch Hassle. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baverstam and recorded by Edward Lee. Good luck with the work ahead.